Hello, I'm Sakawis, your monthly host of the Tuesday 8 o'clock buzz. If you appreciate this coverage on your favorite community radio station, head to wortfm.org and make a donation. And thank you for your support and listenership. Good morning. This is Sakawis, and right now you're listening to the Tuesday 8 o'clock buzz on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. So it's the holiday season, and I thought it would be be a great since it's absolutely central to um, all the gatherings and, and all the things that we're doing uh, right now. Um, I have a particular interest in indigenous food sovereignty and first foods um, because I, I live here in the Great Plains, uh, which has been vastly colonized here uh, to produce monocropped uh, GMO uh, foods, you know, like like corn and soy, uh, which are then highly processed, uh, and then they provide uh, little to no uh, nutritional value to the folks, um, you know, and uh, ingesting them. And unfortunately, um, this food is what is most accessible in inner city and reservation food deserts, uh, leading to huge spikes in diabetes, uh, obesity, heart disease, uh, and and much more in indigenous communities. However. Many indigenous folks uh, across the nation and, and actually across the world, they're making huge changes in this realm by reclaiming uh, and relearning how to grow, process and cook our first foods uh, by working towards you know, food sovereignty, um, by work, working to change legislation um, and uh, opening uh, you know, new and exciting restaurants. So we will be joined today by three indigenous guests who are all experts in the food industry, um, in some way, uh, shape, or form, you know, either by growing it or cooking it, um, and uh, or you know, educating on it. Uh, so we will be joined today by Anthony Warrior, uh, chef and owner of Warrior's Palette Catering and Co- Consultation. Uh, Elena Terry, uh, executive chef and founder of Wild uh, Berries, and uh, Dan Cornelius, uh, former technical assistance uh, specialist for the Intertribal Agricultural Council. Our first guest is someone I've had the honor of working with this past year uh, on some uh, amazing uh, events uh, where um, he cooked some amazing food. (laughs) He created delicious Indigenous-inspired foods uh, that I uh, was lucky to taste. Uh, Anthony Warrior is Chichangu, Shawnee, and Muscogee Creek, and he creates and cooks traditional uh, Native American fare He also teaches food preparation, healthy cooking, traditional and contemporary food preservation classes. Good morning, Anthony. Hello, Wizuaponi. Good morning. (laughs) It's uh, it's really great to have you here today. Thank you for being here. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share the knowledge that uh, I think we all uh, need to hear once in a while. So thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. I've seen you in action, so I know you can definitely talk about food. (laughs) um how did and and speaking of that how did you get um involved in cooking indigenous foods well one of the things that kind of inspired me was uh probably back in the late uh early 90s early uh, late 80s early 90s i worked at a uh, tribal hospital in oklahoma and uh, we worked with a lot of uh the um native populations down in that area and uh, kind of really seen the effects of uh what uh, lack of proper nutrition and lack of education uh, started to do to the people, to the native populations, and uh, kind of uh, 
changed my whole outlook on what I wanted to do to uh, work with health uh, instead of being in the hospital just treating people. I really wanted to work on the level of delivering uh, different education that would actually help heal the people. So that's kind of how I got started into working with indigenous people and having the opportunity to work at casinos across the United States with indigenous uh, people and these tribes. I was able to look into their food systems and try to uh, formulate what traditional foods used to be for them in those areas. So it's a good inspiration. So you're you're kind of self-taught, right? That's correct. Uh, I mean, of course, ceremonial foods uh, that you get to see when you go around to different ceremonies and stuff yeah. like that. But just trying to recreate and to kind of find the sources of those uh, food items is kind of a, is like a challenge. It's like detective work. It's kind of neat. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, I shouldn't say you're self-taught because, you know, I guess I'm I'm talking from a a colonizer's perspective, right? Like self-taught in terms That's of correct, yeah. the fact that you didn't go to like uh, an indigenous cordon bleu, right? Like those don't exist. <laughs> yeah, that it, um, it doesn't, unfortunately. <laughs> So there's, yeah, there's no indigenous cooking school out there is what I'm saying. Um, and so we have to learn from our elders and uh, from being within community. And so, I mean, uh, you've had to learn by taking, I guess, the initiative to seek out the people to, to teach you what you need to know. Yes, that's correct. And one of the things, I guess, uh, the great opportunity about it is uh, being like somewhat commissioned by these uh these tribal casinos and entities um, to try to find traditional foods to be able to offer in, in casino settings is, is kind of what motivated it. So, and, and there's a lot of knowledge there that uh, had to be sourced in the local communities and historical books. Um, I've gone that far as far as research. So it's a lot of this stuff has been kind of a 60, 40 split elders, 60 and, and uh, traditional uh, documentation is 40%. So it's, it's really neat and interesting. A big, a great journey. Wow. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just really struck at the fact that there's all these, well, I mean, let's, let's be honest. And there's not tons of, uh, indigenous chefs, but I do think it's a growing movement. Um, and I'm just really amazed at the dedication that many of you have to, to, to learn, you know, all of these things, um, you know, sort of by just just being passionate about it and 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 searching for the information. Um, but however, is is there a is there a community of chefs of indigenous chefs like out there that help each other out that teach each other things? I I have to say, about twenty, almost thirty years now, uh, twenty eight years ago, uh, somewhere in the area, you know, there there wasn't. I, I actually traveled to a lot of these casinos and there was not one single native that was actually in the, in the culinary field, you know, and so it was kind of difficult, but as uh, the past, uh, I'd probably say about the past 10 years, it's come to a really, you know, a light and come to a head and, you know, the pioneers that are really leading it, uh, some of the older uh, native chefs over the years that I've met, you know, Canada and, and uh, kind of Northeast and some of them even in the, uh, California have kind of been there, but we really didn't have all the opportunities like we do now to be able to form groups, you know, and, and Facebook has been kind of a big joint effort of getting us all together. And, you know, a lot of these uh, Native American food uh, sovereignty groups are now coming to light and they're really sourcing a lot of us and they're uh, sourcing a lot of our uh, knowledge that we've acquired, you know, and, and uh, it's really neat. So 
we're definitely on the move these past five years. So if you're interested, by all means, you can look up a lot of uh, keywords on Facebook and on the on um, internet sites and find these groups, and uh, they're more than willing to share their information with you. I'm uh, I'm really. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's a, a lot of support growing and, and who knows, maybe we will have an indigenous uh, cooking school <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Uh, so we, that... we, I think, I think many of us know, you know, the work that chef Sean Sherman has done these past couple of years with the food lab, you know, and uh, Elizabeth Hoover, she published a nice produ- production uh, a book with the uh, indigenous sovereign food ways and, you know, a lot of research was gone into it. So, yeah, we're definitely heading that way. So, I'm I'm really glad to hear that because the the food is obviously uh, healthy for us. It's it's better for the land, um, and it's. Uh, I always say that um, you know one of the, the 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 first thing you need if you're working towards sovereignty is food sovereignty. So, it's a, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> um, Absolutely. I, I would love to learn more uh, and let our audience know more about uh, your business as well, uh, Warriors Palette Catering and Consultation. Yeah, Warriors Palette was kind of started about uh, 15 years ago and uh, kind of really got its, its lift off of uh, when I was living in Akwesasne, Mohawk uh, territory. And uh, the need for native cuisine was absolutely, you know, uh, was very much needed at the time. And just an educational course um, is kind of where it started, and it ended up being a lot of fun. And we brought a lot of uh, uh, indigenous cooks and chefs up there that had an interest that were uh, trying to figure out their own foodway path- pathways. And so it kind of became a, a, a nice, nice little novelty for me. So um, I'm still active in the catering services and uh, still around the northeast Nebraska and Sioux City area, the tri-state areas here. We've uh, got had the opportunity to really do a lot of uh, work with local groups, such as the Great uh, uh, the um, Great Great Plains Action uh, Society. Yeah, the Great Plains Action Society, <laughs> okay. and, uh, you know, and, and some of the local uh, colleges that are really trying to get into um, finding how to get this to the mainstream. So. Uh, my, my current work with the, with the Warriors Pilot is actually working with the Nebraska Community College and um, some of the groups, um, Little Priest, I'm touching base with them. And I'm trying now to actually get my foot in the door with the, uh, the foodway uh, systems here with the um, IHS in the local area to start providing uh, the holistic meals and holistic health through uh, food and, you know, trying to really educate on how food links to uh, mental health also and physical, you know, the obvious, but mental, uh, more or less, keeping your mind just as healthy as your body. So kind of neat ways of uh, pushing our food systems into this into the mainstream now. Oh, wow. So I, I'm, I'm really struck right how you said uh, getting your foot in the door with IHS um, for audience IHS's Indian Health Services. And um, that would be huge, actually. Yeah. Uh, because we all know that the there are issues with Indian health services um, and uh, cultural competence is, uh, has been a huge learning curve uh, for this uh, institution. So, you know, I, what do you, do you, do you have, so what is the, the deal with that? Uh, do they show, have they shown interest or is this just a, right now something you've been thinking about? Yeah. So uh, the past, oh, since, uh, I think 
2019, we've really kind of noticed um, at one time back in the early um, 2000s, we started dabbling with the uh, mental health of uh, holistic healing of bringing like uh, healers, faith healers into the systems and stuff like that. And one thing that they did pass up was the food. So unfortunately at the time, um, USDA has a big hold on what food offerings can be offered in, in systems. Uh, of course, safety and precautionary, but, you know, sometimes people don't know exactly what's the best for us when it comes to food uh, practices. So now, these past couple of years since COVID and mental health, uh, there's been a lot more monies that can be allocated to research in this department. So it's kind of a prime time to start kind of pulling together to start uh, working with the overall health of all of our individuals um, on the mentality and the uh, uh, on the physical side of our our well-being, so it's it's definitely a time to start moving. And I've been fortunate enough to gain this knowledge over these years. And now I think uh, once we get the movement move, uh, going into offering better deals, we're ready to go. We we got a lot on our palate, and just getting the clearance to be able to offer those food items in, in uh, settings such as uh, hospital settings or healing centers. It's uh, it's definitely a new movement, and we're ready for it. So. That would be amazing. Um, and so uh, you have done work in Sioux City um, and I've done work in Sioux City. We've done work there together. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yes. you know, I'm, I'm just thinking right now about um, the houseless population there. Um, you know, the, the indigenous population in Sioux City makes up less than 2% of the population, but they make up 45 to 63% of the houseless population. I don't know if you knew that, but you probably know something like that, you know, um, just not the necessary, you know, the statistics, but I, I'm imagining right now, um, you know, this work you're doing and how perhaps one day there can also be, you know, a service, um, you know, for indigenous uh, folks, you know, where we, we, we have, um, you know, food uh, for folks that are, you know, that's actually our food that we can serve uh, people. Yes, that's that's one of the biggest questions right now is we, we can create these menus. We can create the opportunities to uh, resort back to um, traditional food waste. And one of the hopes is to open up more commerce and business opportunities for Native American uh, and uh, indigenous growers to be able to, to produce this food for us. And one of the resources that we're looking into right now is trying to get uh, people familiar with the process of uh, obtaining certification to be able to serve these items, you know, uh, and to grow and to be able to distribute. So there's a lot of opportunity from the bottom up for growers, for traditional knowledge makers, you know, and then also um, one of the things that we, we definitely need to, to spread and to be freely open with is the actual, um, the actual uh, processes and customs of what, of how our indigenous population used to used to eat, you know, and just leave this on a big on a on a big note. And a lot of more discussion is the fact that we don't eat the way we did a hundred years ago. We don't eat the way we did fifty years ago. So we're we're kind of removed uh, from those practices, you know. Where now we really truly embrace the American diet, you know, and we're we're literally uh, killing ourselves by not abiding by our customs, you know, and the way we used to really revere our food systems, you know, so now it's cheap and easy. So that's a lot of knowledge and uh, building from the ground up from growers all the way to distributors, 
all the way to the producers, you know, and that's where we're, our, our, our job is at now. That's where we're working towards. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's part of the work you do as well. Um, you do, um, uh, you teach food preparation, healthy cooking, um, you know, food preservation. Uh, how do you, uh, where do you do that? And, and how do you do it? I mean, especially with COVID, I guess maybe you've been doing it via Zoom. Um, I don't know. Can you do that via Zoom? Just just curious. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's been a lot of opportunities and, and different avenues, uh, platforms. We have, uh, uh, with the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, they have a, um, a uh, food uh, nation or native food nourishment um, nation nourishment nourishment is excuse me that's what it's called and we do some things during the summer uh, and a lot of it is done virtual due to COVID um, I also work at Nebraska and Community College and we're currently working on curriculum to help build um, co-curricular uh, classes dedicated to traditional food ways and customs um, as uh, the Native American Studies project uh, program is very big amongst us. Uh, Nebraska Community College is actually getting ready to uh, uh, put out a four-year uh, business program for Native American business ventures. Uh, so that's kind of a big step, and that's going to involve that from uh, entrepreneurship all the way up to, uh, you know, uh, being able to supply and run your own business. So we're doing a lot of work with that, and it's coming along very well, but it will be very much integrated with um, traditional food weight customs too. So, because uh, majority of our livelihood is food. <laughs> wow. Well, this is amazing. I'm so excited to hear about all of these things, especially happening in Nebraska and in the Iowa area. Because I mean, you know, these are not places where um, you hear about this stuff so often. So, uh, thank you so much for doing this amazing work, and thank you for this uh, great conversation today. I appreciate having me up on this uh, show today, and uh, if anybody like to reach out to me feel free to share my contact information with them i will uh thank you uh i can't wait uh for the next time um and for more information about anthony's work check out his facebook page uh warriors palette and we're back uh with elena terry uh elena terry who is a ho-chunk chef uh and an indigenous food educator she is founder and executive chef of wild berries a local nonprofit aimed at educating the community about indigenous food and cooking uh, she is also a lead mentor for the native american food sovereignty alliance and she's frequently and she frequently collaborates with the intertribal uh, agricultural council um, Esquaki Food Sovereignty Initiative, and UW Madison's Department of Horticulture. Uh, good morning, Elena. Good morning. Um, it's it's great to have you here today uh, on the eight o'clock buzz. And and actually, I do have a quick question. Am I pronouncing your first name correctly? You are. It is Elena. Okay. <laughs> great. I just wanted to make sure. Um, well, thank you for being here. Uh, and um, I'd love to start off with a little history. Um, how and why? Did you get involved in cooking first foods and working towards food sovereignty? Ooh, uh, I, it's something that I've done up my entire life. Uh, I've always found a great amount of reward, really, from being around our foods. And uh, those were the most impressionable, positive memories of my childhood was being able to cook with you know, my great-grandma, my grandmother, my mother's, and going out into the woods and finding, uh, you know, our foods in their wild and natural state with my grandfather and 
it's always been a place of peace for me. When we used our foods, it was during ceremony, uh, times of prayer and gatherings. And I've always enjoyed working in restaurants and worked in restaurants for about uh, around 10 years before I decided that, you know, I really wanted to be more involved in Indigenous food sovereignty around five years ago and really dedicated myself to it around four years ago. I, um, I'm, I, I'm so glad because uh, I've heard great things about wild, wild berries. Um, and I, I do want to learn more about that. But just for our audience, um, I, I would like them to have like a picture in their mind of what we're talking about. Um, can you just explain to me like what some of these foods are? Sure. When you say uh, indigenous foods, you really have to think about foods that existed here before um, contact came over. And the way that we had our foods available to us in their purest forms, um, <clears throat> it really is that. There's also a lot of, which, which I think is not really discussed as much when you say indigenous foods, but there was a lot of uh, traditional trade that happened. You know, corn was discovered in in Canada hundreds of years ago, and that was really because of the trade routes that happened from South America. And so those foods and the interactions that we had and the way that um, we started getting some of these ancestral foods, they go back thousands of years. And so when you talk about indigenous foods, that's what we're talking about. Like the the berries that existed here um, in, in our particular regions, because really when you think about the United States and the amount of diversity with our regions, you can think about the amount of diversity that we have with our food systems. It, it really is an incredible abundance of ingredients that we used, um, you know, pre-colonial contact. Mm. You know, I, I really like that you added the, the movement of food as well. That's so important. Um, and so, and you, and, and you are founder and executive chef of Wild Berries, uh, a local nonprofit. Um, in, and I'd love to learn more about what motivated you to start this nonprofit and, and what does this nonprofit do? Sure. So Wild Berries is really about building community and we put it as a like a community outreach educational catering but it really is based on mentoring connections with ourselves and our smaller community and then the greater communities in which we reside so it really is about building a support all on behalf of food security um, food education and uh, the participants in wild berries because we are a nonprofit, it are people overcoming alcohol and other drug abuse issues or emotional traumas and, and really using food as a vessel to come back to our communities. And I'd have to say, you know, I, Wild Berry started because I was the first one. You know, I was the first one that needed to come back to my community. And I really think that putting it out there without judgment and saying this is how I was able to heal a little bit more. This is, you know, how I was able to make these connections with people and having other people come in and join that has been, it, it's indescribably rewarding to be able to see people even being a little bit more uh, aware 
of their food sources and of the people providing their food, it's, it's incredible. And then to be able to have a space where, um, you know, our community members are coming to better themselves, to educate themselves a little bit more, and to really be proud of who we are has, has really been the reward in it for me. Are you there? Yes. Yes. Oh, hi. Sorry about that. It just had a, we had a, a cut out just a little bit. Um, we heard the majority of that actually just until the last uh, word. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> it, it, that's very, really great. It's been very rewarding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so where, where is Wild Berries located? And like, what is the range of the area that you work within? So we operate out of Wisconsin Dells, but service primarily Dane County. Uh, we have wild berries that uh, are throughout the entire country, really, and into Canada right now that that come and help support us because we are ultimately about mentoring. And it really, like we use the word mentoring, but it is the way that we used to learn. You know, we used to learn by apprenticeship and by doing things and and so it really is about that and leading by example. Uh, so we do a lot of tribal activities in the state of Wisconsin to help build tribal partnerships, although um, Wild Berries is primarily made up of Ho-Chunks. We do have other tribes in the, um, in the state that participate and tribal members that participate. So where we started with four original Oh, I think you might have cut out, Elena. Are you there? I think we're having a little technical difficulty, folks. Um, I am going to fill in for a minute. <laughs> we'll see if it comes back online. Um, so, uh, Wild Berries um, um, is obviously doing some great work. Uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, I know that uh, Elena also mentioned that she's working with the Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative. And I am lucky enough to know um, some great folks also doing uh, work there. Um, I'm thinking of Shelly Buffalo, one of my good friends at the moment. Um, and uh, another initiative that um, everybody should check out, which is um, the Meskwaki um, uh, Red Gardens. Uh, if you're in Iowa, uh, please go uh, check it out. Um, and I think we might have Elena back. Yes, okay, great. So Elena. Yes, hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I was I'm just so talking about the Meskwaki Food Initiative. Oh, oh yes, yes. I, I love working in Meskwaki. With the storm coming, my, my service is really bad in rural Wisconsin, so I really apologize about that. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, it's uh, we, we still got a lot of great info um, uh, moving along here. Um, you know, what, what's, what's, uh, what do you see happening for wild berries, you know, moving forward? Is there, is there a goal? Are there things you'd like to see happen? You know, just um, are, would you like to grow um, the community? Yes. We, so because of COVID and our shift in being able to do in-person events and, you know, caterings on the level that we were doing, we really started to focus on community gardens and agriculture and multiplying our ancestral seeds, which are seeds that have been, you know, cared for 
and grown out for centuries. And so uh, we've been working very closely with our seed savers and our growers and, and working on developing those spaces within our communities so people can learn more about um, providing for themselves. And in this day and age, I think it was a really impactful position to take because it was something that we did. You know, a lot of people think of indigenous peoples and and think of, you know, hunters and gatherers and stuff. And we did those activities. But it's also proven that we were cultivators thousands of years ago. And so continuing those practices and bringing them back in our community, it was a natural evolution of our responsibility. I love that you brought up seed saving because I realized that I did not even think to mention that um, in this show. And yet that is, well, that's, that's the foundation, right? Um, if we don't have the seeds, we can't, we can't grow the food. And there's a lot of seed rematriation going on now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And so, I mean, personally, we, for uh, the Ho-Chunk Nation, had these ancestral seeds. And I lived down the road from an archaeological dig site that proved we had raised garden beds a thousand years ago. And so we were looking at these seeds and and trying to get them back to our community. And it's really neat motion that some of the seeds came back on their own. Like people that we didn't know realized that we were doing this work and knew that they had some of these seeds put away and were returning them back. And it's a movement that is going across the country, really across the Americas, where people are not only finding seeds and returning them, there are people who have stewarded these seeds and are returning them to tribes. And so it's this great sense of reciprocity between each other and caring for each other. And then also making sure, you know, a seed is a living being and it's just kind of sleeping, waiting to be woken up to provide, you know, it's to fulfill its destiny is kind of how we say it. So when those seeds come back home, like I have a story of a, a Ho-Chunk bean, and it's very emotional for me because it is a member of our community and it came home to provide for us. And so those beautiful actions have been put in place throughout so many tribes in the Americas and it's, it's a wonderful thing to witness. And then to see those seeds grow out and to see the community be able to have these foods that they might not have tasted in the same way before that our ancestors tasted, it really does put a sense of responsibility on us to continue the work so that our future generations will have these food sources. Oh, that's a great way to end this uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, how you transform the food industry. Um, uh, to learn more about Elena's work, uh, please visit uh, Wildberries at wildberries.org. And we're back with uh, Dan Cornelius, who is a member of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. He works as an outreach specialist and deputy director of uh, the Great Lakes Indigenous Law Center at the UW Law School. But before he worked there, he assisted Native Nations and their members with developing uh, agricultural and food systems as the Intertribal uh, Agricultural Council uh, Technical Assistance Specialist, wow, that's a mouthful, um, for Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, and Iowa. Uh, 
uh, and uh, I know is still doing uh, wonderful things uh, in the you know in, in terms of uh, food sovereignty. Um, and I, I just want to say thank you for being here today, Dan. Good morning. And uh, good morning to you. Um, can you tell us how you got involved in growing First Foods and working towards food sovereignty? Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it, it, that wasn't one single thing. It was just kind of a, just kind of a journey over time. And I know for, for me, I, I guess I just look at food and agriculture of, um, if we address the issues that we have with food and agriculture, if we, if we really work toward, uh, toward rebuilding food sovereignty, that in the process we address so many of the of of the deeper issues that that our tribal communities face, and so ultimately that's you know that that's what motivates me and what has uh, you know has has led me on this journey. And did you um, grow up um, seeing? Uh, the you know the uh, growth and culti- the cultivation and growth and processing of first foods or is this a journey uh, you took um, as you got older and uh, researched and and uh, uh, had to seek out folks to help with that? I would say probably a little bit of both. I mean, I you know for me, um, my grandma always you know this time of year my grandma always would make corn soup and you know so you know I I think always had a little bit of it but it it definitely it's been something that um you know that has has taken um having a lot of mentors and um you know and and really learning and it's just a it's just a you know it's a continuing journey you know, and I, and I ask this because I'm absolutely amazed at uh, the folks working in the food industry, the indigenous, uh, well, working in the realm of indigenous food sovereignty and first foods and, and uh, trying to change the food industry. Because, um, you know, it's like I was when I was talking with Anthony earlier, you know, it's not like this is just easily accessible. It's not like there's a school out there that people uh, attend <laughs> and then they, you know, they have a, a degree of some sort. Um you know, I just I want our audience to know like how much how passionate people have to be to do this work, um, and how they um, they have to you know basically teach themselves and and look for those mentors. Um, well, and, so, and, and hopefully know. I yeah, and and I think hopefully for you know for our our younger generation, hopefully there is a school that they you know hopefully you know for especially in our our tribal communities hopefully you know all of our kids are able to um to to have that as part of their their education both within the school but just as you know as, as part of growing up and i i do think that i do think there's some exciting um you know that there's some exciting opportunities and developments there and um you know, for myself, I, I live off the reservation. I'm, I live um, outside of Madison. Uh, do a lot of work with with Oneida, and um, I was when I was buying my farm last year. My biggest hesitation with buying it was, um, you know, was thinking about my son and about him being able to go to the to, to the turtle school at Oneida. 
And I think that's one of the really exciting things, even in you know the past five, even you know, ten years, that you've got more and more families at Oneida that that they want their kids to to go to the Oneida schools. And I think that um, you know that some of that growth and development in a lot of our tribal communities. I mean, I, I see that as one of the exciting opportunities for the future and where a lot has, has happened positively in the past, you know, even just decade. Absolutely. Um, and you have a small farm, right, just outside of Madison. Can you tell us more about this and, and what do you grow? Um, yeah, my, my farm is Yuela at is Oneida for, for Gentle Wind. Um, I've got uh, just a little bit more than 50 acres um, right outside of Madison. And mostly I grow indigenous corn. Um, I do some pumpkins, some squash, uh, you know, the three sisters, and some other vegetables. And then I also uh, raise uh, livestock. I've got, um, I've got uh, cattle and horses and then i'm doing poultry uh, chickens and ducks as well and really uh working and using those those animals to help to build soil health and um really trying to um to use them in a way that you know just as the buffalo used to to roam and graze the prairies and the savannas to use those animals in that same way to, you know, really regenerate the soil and build soil health. Wow. That's, <laughs> that speaks straight to my heart. I, uh, I, I do a lot of, uh, education, um, and, um, uh, you know, just, uh, I guess organizing around, uh, big ag here in Iowa. So I'd love to hear that you're building soil health. Um, can you tell us more about the uh, Inter-Tribal uh, Agricultural Council? Yeah. Um, so I, I still work for the Inter-Tribal Agriculture Council. I've got a partial appointment at um, at the University of Wisconsin oh, Law School. I'm very sorry but, uh, for that mistake. Oh, it's, that's that's okay. I, I still work for the Inter-Tribal Agriculture Council. And um, Inter-Tribal Ag Council, or IEC, as, we, uh, as we, we, we refer to it, IEC was founded in... 1987, and it was really uh, in response to uh, agricultural crisis that there was a, a severe a kind of kind of similar to this year a severe drought out west. Um, the Great Plains, in particular, was hit was hit really bad. I mean, actually, a couple of years in a row, and Congress had commissioned a um, a report, and the findings that came back there was the Indian Lands Working Group and um, and there, the findings that came back, um, they had a, a whole list of different issues, and um, and ultimately um, that report is what led to the formation of the Intertribal Agriculture Council. And so over the past uh, now almost 35 years, Intertribal Ag Council has worked to to promote Native agriculture and working both with tribes, but working to support individual uh, uh, growers and producers as well. So um, you know, there's a lot of exciting things that are happening there. And uh, you know, it's a lot of my work right now is kind of going back and looking at, at the creation of the, of the organization and the conditions 
that um you know that and and that initial report and what's changed and you know what what still remains of those issues that we need to be addressing and um we have some some really exciting efforts that are going on right now I'm uh really glad to hear that and so you you're um part of the Midwest uh, uh sector I guess of the council is yeah. that correct mm-hmm. or is there yeah. I'm a little confused sometimes about that. <laughs> well, it's uh, so the the Intertribal Agriculture Council is a membership-based organization. So there's member tribes. All, all tribes are technically a member, but uh, tribes in good standing that have uh, have that the tribe has appointed a delegate, assigned a delegate, and uh, they have uh, voting rights. And you know it's, it's broken up into to regions uh, based on on the on the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, regions. So oh, every okay. region then every region then um, has a has a board member. And so I think that's one of the unique things about the organization is that it, it is membership based and really um, you know coming coming straight from tribal political sovereignty and. Now, a big part of what the organization is is doing right now is advocacy and is the lead partner on the Native Farm Bill Coalition for the 2018 Farm Bill. Uh, the Native Farm Bill Coalition had helped to result in a record number of 63 tribally oriented provisions, and that effort is just is scaling up again right now. But you know that's where a lot of the exciting um, developments are happening, and. I think one of the the most exciting here in, in the region is we have uh, a couple of pilot food distribution efforts that are really starting to make some some pretty big headway in terms of helping to support our producers by being able to buy directly from our our own growers, harvesters, um, and uh, you know and, and other agricultural producers, and then keeping that food right within our communities and helping to provide healthier food for our communities, whether that's low income through the food distribution program on Indian reservations, or we've got another uh, partnership with Feeding Wisconsin, uh, a bunch of other partners with Feeding America funds that we have a a tribal elder food box that put out over 10,000 boxes this year. Oh, wow. That's, uh, That's amazing. I'm really glad to hear that. We only have about a minute left, but um, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, quickly about the Food Sovereignty Symposium and Festival, and will there be one next year? Uh, yeah, we um, we are tentatively scheduled. Uh, it was going to be September. We moved it to, to May and, and then realized that we're um, overlapping with the Native Nutrition Conference. So we're working one more time to reschedule, looking for June of 2022, and just closely monitoring uh, the conditions in the meantime. And and that event is going to be up in uh, at the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community uh, and Northern Michigan University in Marquette, Michigan. I am going to try to be there because I really enjoy this conference. <laughs> so um, I just want to say thank you. Uh, I really appreciate your time and and the the work you've been doing. Thank you for thank you for having me on. 
absolutely. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what you do next um, and um, to find out more about the Intertribal Agricultural Council um, of the Midwest, go to uh, IndianAG, IndianAg.org slash Midwest. Um, and so we are at the end of the hour. Um, you've been listening to Tuesday 8 o'clock buzz on your community radio station, WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. Thank you to engineer John Miner and producer Charlie Pittman. I'm your host, Sakawas, for the last Tuesday of every month. And uh, thanks for joining us. Hi, Kitata Mahin. <laughs>